Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. The story is told of the Prince of Granada who was an heir to the Spanish crown. Now this prince was actually sentenced to life in solitary confinement in Madrid's ancient prison that was referred to as the Place of the Skull. Now this prison earned the name because of how dirty, miserable, and how terrifying of a place it was to be in. Everyone knew that once you went into this prison, you would never come out alive. This prince was only given one book, one book to read the entire time that he was there. He was given the Bible. Now since that is pretty much all that he had to do, he read it over and over and over and over again. He read it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and it became his constant companion. After being in this prison, for 33 years, this prince died. And when they came in to clean out his cell, they found some notes he had written with nails, written into the soft stones that made up the walls of his cell. The notes that he wrote, they said things like this. Psalm 118, verse 8, is the middle verse of the Bible. Ezra 721 contains all the letters of the alphabet except the letter J. The ninth verse of the eighth chapter of Esther is the longest verse in the Bible. No word or name of more than six syllables can be found in the Bible. You see, this prince, he knew about the Bible. In fact, he may have known more useless trivia, useless facts about the Bible than any other person that has ever walked on this earth. But I ask you this morning, what good was his knowledge? What did it profit him? 33 years with the Bible as his constant companion, and all this man knew was trivia. Now contrast this with me, if you would, with the story told by the late Dr. Criswell of a small New Testament that was taken from the pocket of a dead American soldier. This young soldier was from Georgia, and Dr. Criswell used to say that when he saw the Bible, when he looked at it, he could see the light go right through the middle where the bullet had ripped right through. And when Dr. Criswell held it in his hands, he saw that the pages of the Bible were stained with the blood of this soldier that had died. And flipping through it, Dr. Criswell found the inscription in the back of the Bible that read, On this day, I, Wilton Thomas, take Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And then it was signed, and it was dated by this young man. Two men. After 33 years, one man could give you trivia. The other man saw the Word of God as the source of life. And when he was shot and killed, the bullet had to rip through his Bible before it took him to be with the Lord. You see, this is what the Bible is for. This is why the God of heaven has given us his written word. 
When the Bible speaks, when the Bible mentions science and history, it's 100% accurate. But it's not meant to be a science textbook. And it's not meant to actually teach world history. The purpose of the Word of God is to draw men and women into a relationship with the Creator. And understanding this relationship is the bedrock for how we live out our faith. You see, my strongest concern, out of all the things I want believers to know, is that they understand their identity in Jesus Christ. Understanding your position in Christ, your spiritual standing in Christ. But then secondly, taking the truth you learn in the Word of God and you live it out day by day in your life. Now as I study this letter that Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus, I see a demonstration of the apostle's heart. I see this focus from the Apostle Paul because from chapter 1, verse 3, through verse 13 in chapter 3, Paul wrote about the great spiritual truths of who we are as believers in Christ and the standing that we have before Almighty God. But now, starting in this morning's text with verse 14, all the way through the rest of the letter, Paul encourages the church to live it out. To live out all this glorious truth that he had just proclaimed. Let's get to our text. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With these first three words where Paul says, for this reason, Paul is actually tying himself back to verse 1. Turn back in your Bibles, if you would, to verse 1 of chapter 3. And notice how Paul starts verse 1. Same wording in almost every translation. For this reason. You see, Paul was, at this point, referring back to all that he had taught them in chapters 1 and chapters 2. About who they were in Jesus Christ. And about the reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles in the church of Jesus Christ. And when Paul was writing verse 1, you can almost imagine him about to pray for the believers in Ephesus like he does in our text for this morning. But as he's writing the rest of verse 1, the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to switch gears and remind them of the mystery that he had been talking about. So really, in other words, what I'm telling you is this. What you have is verses 2 through 13 are a parenthesis, meaning sort of a side comment, a side subject. And then in verse 14, Paul is picking it up right where he left off with verse 1. So go back to verse 14 with me then, if you would. And notice how Paul does this. He starts up with the same exact first three words that we looked at, for this reason. But then Paul adds this. He says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's stop for a moment and think about the normal posture for Jews when they would pray. They would stand when they prayed. That was the normal posture most of the time. And in Genesis chapters 18 and 19, you see Abraham. How was he he praying? He was standing before the Lord. You see examples of this in the Gospels. And even think to yourself at the Wailing Wall today, how do you see the Jewish people praying? They rock back and forth, right? They rock back and forth while standing in one spot. 
But even though the common practice in that day was for the Jews to stand while they prayed, this doesn't mean that they never knelt. This doesn't mean that. What you see throughout Scripture is when a man of God was passionate or he was emotional about an issue at hand, when a man of God wanted to show extreme reverence to the Lord, if they wanted to show their submission, if they wanted to show their recognition of God's authority in their life, well, then they would bend those knees. Then they would get down on their knees and pray. Psalm 95, what does it tell us? It says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord God, our Maker. Matthew tells us in chapter 26, on the night of his betrayal in the garden, Christ literally fell on his face and prayed to the Father. Scripture tells us that Ezra, he fell to his knees in prayer. Daniel chapter 6 tells us that Daniel himself three times a day, every day, would get on his knees in prayer. Acts 20, when Paul was with the elders of the church of Ephesus at Miletus, he got on his knees in prayer. So when you see in the Bible someone praying on their knees, I want you to think of reverence, think of submission, think of passion, think of emotion, think of the honest, intense desire to see that prayer answered. So in verse 14, now in our text, in light of the context of the passage, Paul had just got done discussing the wisdom of God, the love of God, the grace of God. And honestly, I think what happens now is Paul was completely overcome by the sovereignty of God. And I think Paul was completely overcome by his desire to see the believers at Ephesus grow in their faith. And at that point, I think Paul just, his knees buckled and he prayed to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 15, it tells us, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now people like to say, even in churches, which is sad, but People like to say that all people are God's children. The Word of God doesn't really teach us that, does it? That all people are God's children. The Word of God actually tells us in John 8 and 1 John chapter 3 that you are either in the spiritual family of Satan or you belong to the spiritual family of God. Those are the two options. In fact, listen with me to what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3.10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. You see that distinction in the word of God. Read that again. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Redeemed believers in Christ are children of God, while the unsaved in the eyes of God are children of the devil. So the reference here in our text... To the whole family of God, it's a reference to the saints, to the redeemed from all the ages, those that are in heaven and those that are still alive on the earth. This is a reference to the spiritual family of God. And again, Paul must have had in mind at this point the uniting of the Jews and Gentiles into one spiritual family who all had Jesus Christ as their Savior. But look at what he starts to pray for starting now in verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in where? The inner man. 
This phrase, according to the riches of his glory, follow the line of thinking. The greater a person's wealth, the more that a person would have to give in order to give according to their riches. In other words, because God's grace, God's love, and God's mercy is beyond our human comprehension, because Paul is asking God to grant those things according to God's glory, Paul is really asking God to grant something to believers in Christ that only God himself can even do. This is not something that can be duplicated by the methods of the world. This is something that can only come from God. And the amazing thing about what Paul prays for is that all these things come out of the riches of God's glory. Meaning that as believers in Christ, we have access to these spiritual blessings simply because we're in Jesus Christ. And so first he prays here that the believers would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Strengthened basically means empowered. Might means power. So again, Paul is praying that we would be empowered with power through the Holy Spirit. And where? We already said, the inner man. So let's stop for a second now here and understand this concept. Let's make sure we understand the concept of the inner man. You see, the inner man is more than just your thoughts. It's more than just your mental self. The inner man, it's more than just your intellect or our smarts. It's more than just our emotions. It's more than just our human will. But rather, it is our spiritual identity which was reborn when we received Jesus Christ as our Savior. You see, when we became Christians, we... We're no longer then a part of the spiritual family of Satan. We were reborn. We were transferred over here into the blessed family of God. Amen? That's why we're gathered here together. We're the family of God. Think of what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He went on to tell the church this. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing yet. What? The inward man. The inward man is being renewed day by day. You see, it's real simple. Our outward bodies, you may have noticed, they're getting older. They're getting older. Day by day, our bodies get a little weaker. They get older and older and they decay. And things don't work like they should. And now more often than not, what do we as Christians do? We focus, though, on that outward man. We tend to focus on how we feel. We tend to focus on how we look. We focus on our physical health. But Paul's focus, just the opposite. Paul's focus was primarily on that inner man. You see, if you're walking with Christ, if you're fellowshipping with the saints, if you're submitting yourself to Christ, if you're submitting yourself to his word, the inner man is getting stronger. It's being strengthened. The inner man is getting more powerful, growing deeper, and is being renewed day by day by the power of God's spirit. So follow this with me. 
Think of what Paul is telling us. Paul has been talking about our spiritual identity in Christ. And one of the biggest deceptions that the Christians today tend to pick up from the lost is that our identity is somehow based on our education. That our identity is based on how we look, what we do for a living, who our friends are, what our hobbies are. But if the truth is going to be told, the inner man, who you are in Jesus Christ, this, friends, is who you are. Amen? That's who you are. As Christians, our identity comes from Jesus Christ. So this is where Paul prays for the church. He doesn't pray for the big toe that's hurting or all those different things. He prays for them to be strengthened, to be strengthened by the power of God through his spirit in the inner man. Now, I just mentioned 2 Corinthians 4. Let's turn there. Because Paul teaches us that our outward circumstances in life do not matter. Now, this should actually bring us comfort, great hope. 2 Corinthians 4, we'll start with verse 8. Notice what Paul writes. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. And then we see our verse, skip ahead, down in verse 16, where we read again, Therefore, we do not lose heart. The apostles in the early church, remember, were suffering persecution. And Paul is saying here, even though our outward circumstances are pretty bad, things aren't going exactly how we want it to go, Paul tells the church, we do not lose heart. Why? Because even though our outward man is perishing, yet the, what? Inward man is being renewed day by day. But then look at how he goes on in verse 17. In light of thinking about the inner man. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Notice, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are what? Temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. As we focus on Jesus Christ and as we focus on his word, as we grow in our faith, the outer man... The outer man begins to matter to us less and less. While the inner man and our growth in Jesus Christ, that becomes our focus. So head back now to Ephesians. And Paul writes next that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now the purpose of Christians being strengthened by the power of God through his spirit in the inner man is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the purpose. Now as you first look at this, you may be thinking that Paul is referring to men and women coming to know Christ, that this refers to salvation. But if you dig a little bit deeper in the text, you find that this is not a reference to Christ coming to live inside of someone as they're being saved. Because once you break down the wording, you find out that what Paul was actually saying is that this refers to Christ being at home in our lives. I'm sure most of us here know the familiar story where you picture the Christian life as a house, a big old house. And once you're redeemed, you've let Jesus into this house. But now that Jesus is there, now that he's taken up residence in your home, he won't sit still. He goes from room to room. 
And first stop is the library, which represents the mind. And in your library, Jesus finds all sorts of things that shouldn't be there, all sorts of trash that needs throwing out. So he throws those things out and replaces them with the word. And in the dining room of appetite, he finds many sinful desires listed on the worldly menu. In places of things such as prestige and materialism and lust, Christ replaces them with humility, meekness, love, and all the other virtues for which believers are to hunger and thirst. Then he goes into the living room of fellowship. And what does he find there? He finds worldly companions, worldly activities. And then in the workshop, he finds that only toys are being made. And he goes into the closet where the hidden sins are kept. Hate it when he goes there. On and on, he goes into every room of your home until he has gone into every corner, every closet. And has completely cleaned out every aspect of this house until he has taken out every foolish sin, every foolish worldly thing that he finds. And then, at that point, once the house is clean, then Christ can settle down and be, what? At home. You see, and this, friends, hear me on this. This is the fundamental difference between walking by grace and walking according to the legalistic rules of men. You see, legalism is following the outward rules of men. But oh, walking by grace is allowing God to change us. Walking by grace is yielding our lives to Him, not because we have to, but because of the love of God at work over here in our lives. So to have Jesus Christ dwell in our hearts through faith means for him to be at home in every single corner in our lives. Because we believe in his word and we become obedient to his word in the different aspects of our faith. And that is the idea that Paul is communicating with this verse. Because the Greek word for dwell, it doesn't mean that Christ is just coming to live in us like Christ does at salvation, but rather it means Christ being at home in our lives, Christ settling down, because we as believers have learned to submit to God, to the power of God, through the Holy Spirit. And because we as believers have learned to submit ourselves to the Word of God. Jesus said in John 14, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and what? Make our home with him. So Paul's prayer for the believers was that they would be strengthened in the inner man in order that Christ would be at home in every aspect of their lives. Now Paul continues in the rest of verse 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend one of my favorite verses here. With all the saints, what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Follow the beautiful progression in this passage. He was praying that the believers would be strengthened in the inner man. That Christ would be at home in their lives. And letting Christ be at home in their lives enables us to know the vast dimensions of God's love. The result of a man or woman yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit and submitting to Christ in our hearts 
What is the result? It's love. This is the result of a man or woman that is being renewed in the inner man. The love of Christ for God himself, yes, but also for others. Also for others. When Christ reigns in our hearts, we are, as Paul said, rooted and grounded in love. In other words, we have a strong foundation because Christ himself is the living demonstration of God's love for us. Think of what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, when he said, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love What? Abides in God and God in Him. You see, if we abide in the love of Christ, we are abiding in God Himself. Our foundation is firm. And as we live for Christ and as we continue in His Word and as the Spirit of God teaches our hearts and minds, we learn from the truth of God's Word just how much it is that God loves us. God loves you. He loves me. Just how much we deserved eternal death and just how much God acted in complete mercy and in grace. And that is why Paul writes the width and length and depth and height. Paul is trying to communicate that the love of Christ is vast. It cannot be measured. And it goes in every direction, offering mankind the opportunity to accept eternal life, to live with him throughout eternity. Was not Paul demonstrating the church to the church the width of God's love by talking about both Jews and Gentiles being accepted into the body of Christ? Was not Paul demonstrating the length of God's love when Paul taught in chapter 1 of Ephesians that the love of God, it stretches from eternity past and stretches to eternity future? And was not Paul demonstrating the height of God's love when he told the church in chapter 1, verse 3, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in where? In the heavenly places, in Christ. And was Paul not demonstrating the depth of God's love in chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, when Paul wrote that God had reached down into the lowest levels of depravity to redeem those dead in sin? You see, God's love can reach any person in sin. God's love, it reaches back into eternity past and it goes forward into eternity future. God's love, it literally lifts us up so that we can be in the very presence of God. And the comprehension of God's love in verse 18 is the understanding that God's love is vast. That God's love is eternal. That God's love is something that can only come from the one true God. But at the very same time, in verse 19, it tells us, from a human point of view, the love of Christ, it surpasses knowledge. Now certainly we look at that as believers in Christ and say, hey, wait a minute, we know the love of Christ. As we experience the love of Christ, as we read of the love of Christ in his word, but even for us, a better comprehension comes and it awaits for us in heaven. Look at the next phrase in verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, if you're trying to understand what Paul is saying here, we must keep in mind that God's goal is to bring us to himself. His goal is to make us more and more like him. And how does he do that? How does he do that? By filling us with himself. Now, the word for filled, it means to make full. That's pretty shocking, huh? It means to make full. 
The idea here, though, is of total dominance. For example, a person filled with anger and rage is what? Dominated by hatred. A person filled with happiness is totally dominated by joy. So to be dominated or filled with the fullness of God is to be dominated in your life by Christ, to become under the control of Jesus Christ. You know, it reminds me of the old story of a little girl who turned to her mother after church and said, Mommy, the pastor's sermon, it was so confusing today. And the mother asked, well, why is that, honey? And the little girl, she answered and said, well, he said that God is bigger than we are. Is that true? Well, yes, that's true, the mother said. And then the little girl said, well, he also said that God lives within us. Is that true? And the mother replied, yes, that's true. Well... Well, girl said, if God is bigger than us and he lives in us, wouldn't he show through? Very good question, isn't it? And so we must ask ourselves this morning, does God show through in your life? Because you see, that's the goal, isn't it? That's the prayer that Paul had for the Christians in Ephesus, that they would live their lives under the control of Jesus Christ. And then in our last two verses, Paul wrote this. Such a beautiful section of scripture. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul was praying for the believers. And he burst out into this moment of praise. And the idea is simple. The idea is that God should receive all the glory for what he's done for us. That's why Paul starts verse 20 by saying, now to him, now to God. And look at what Paul says about God. This ought to build your faith. Who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. God is sovereign, is he not? God is sovereign. And Paul tells us that God could do more than we could ever ask for, more than we could ever think. But, friends, keep this in context. Keep this in mind of what Paul has been discussing in Ephesians. And really, what you're going to see is that Paul is saying that when our inner man is being strengthened by the Spirit of God, when Christ is at home in our hearts, when we are rooted and grounded in love, and when we are controlled by the love of Christ in our lives, then comes verse 20, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. You see, look at the next part, according to the power that works in us. What I'm telling you is this isn't about God giving us big houses or nice cars. This is about us being conformed to the image of Christ. This is about submitting our hearts and our minds and our lives to Jesus Christ so that he can use us in ways that we would never imagine. Why? For our glory, oh, may it never be, to advance his message of grace to this world. Because as Paul writes in verse 20, it's his power working in us. And it's God alone that can do above all that we could ask or think in our lives. So that his message of love and his message of hope can go forth. And once again, what is the overriding message of scripture? The message is, it's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about us living for Christ. And only when you understand that concept can you understand verse 21, where Paul wrote, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever 
and ever. Amen. Even in Paul's prayer, even in his praise, we see the power and glory of God. It has a purpose, and the purpose is to bring glory to God. And the glory of God, it should be manifest in the church of Jesus Christ. And so it should be that in the church of Christ, the Lord should be worshipped for his wisdom, his power, his love, and his grace. And I think we can all join Paul by saying amen to the truth of God's word. Edie Ogan wrote about her childhood. It was difficult because her father had died, leaving her mother to raise seven kids on her own. By the time 1946 came around, some of the older sisters had actually gotten married. The older brothers had left home. So now at this point, 1946, it was just young Edie and two of her sisters living at home with their mother. A month before this, the pastor of the church had announced that they were going to take up a special offering for a poor family in the church. So he asked everyone, he said, hey, everyone, save up as much as you can to sacrifice for this offering. And when this family got home, they talked about, well, what could they do to help out? They decided to buy 50 pounds of potatoes and live on those potatoes for a month so that they could save some money up from their grocery budget. They kept their electric lights off as much as possible. They didn't even listen to the radio so that they could save on their electric bill. Edie said her sister Darlene cleaned houses, they cleaned yards, and the young ladies babysat as much as they could to save money for this offering. Keep in mind, this is back in 1946. For 15 cents, they bought enough cotton loops to make three pot holders that would sell for a dollar. They actually made $20 on pot holders. This became the best month of their lives. They would sit there and count the money to see how much they had saved up. And at night they would talk about how that poor family would enjoy the money that they were giving them. Now they figured, because there was 80 people in the church, that everyone would be doing the same. That everyone would be raising as much as they were. And that Sunday finally came when the offering would be taken. They had raised $70 by themselves. It was raining on that particular Sunday. They didn't have an umbrella. And church was over a mile from their home. But they didn't care when they walked and they got wet as they walked to church. They didn't care. They were just excited to be able to contribute to the Lord's work. The older sister Darlene had cardboard in the bottom of her shoes to fill in the holes. Cardboard, it fell apart in the rain. She was completely soaked. The girls overheard some of the other kids talking about them and the old clothes that they had on while everyone else was going to church dressed in the latest fashions. This family didn't care. They'd raised a lot of money to help a poor family. They felt rich. Well, sure enough, when that offering plate came by with a little bit of pride, they they put their offering in. And all the way home, you know what they did? They sang songs and hymns of praise all the way home. And at lunch... Their mom had a surprise for them. They actually had some eggs with their potatoes. But later that afternoon, their bubble burst because the pastor, he drove up in his car and their mom went out and talked with him and came back with an envelope. They opened the envelope and inside was the money that they had given with another $17 that had been given from the rest of the people in this church. They put the money back in the envelope. They all looked down at the floor as 
reality sank in that they, they were the poor family. She said that they had gone from feeling like millionaires to feeling miserable. Their life had been so happy. They felt sorry for other people who didn't have such a wonderful family. They actually thought it was fun to share silverware, to take turns and to see who got to use the spoon or the fork on that given night. But it never really dawned on these kids that they were poor. Suddenly, they became ashamed of the old clothes that they wore. They didn't even want to go back to church because they were so embarrassed. So they sat in silence for a long time, and then they just slowly, one at a time, went off to bed. Well, all that week it was pretty quiet in that house, and finally on Saturday their mom asked what they thought they should do with the money. They didn't know because they'd never had this kind of money before. The next day, no one wanted to go to church, but they went. And it was a beautiful Sunday day outside. But they didn't sing this time on their way to church because their hearts, their hearts had been crushed. They lost their focus. They lost their joy. They had gone from sacrificing to serve Christ to becoming poor people who needed the help of others. Well, that Sunday, as God would have it, A missionary spoke, and he talked about churches in Africa that made buildings with sun-dried bricks. They needed money to buy materials for the roofs. For $100, they could put a roof on a church. Well, you can imagine this family, their faces lit up with a smile for the first time in a week. They put the envelope in the offering, and when it was all counted, just a little bit over $100 had come in. This family had given 87, with the other wealthy families only giving the remaining 13. When the missionary heard the good news that $100 had been raised for the churches in Africa, he praised God and said that it must have been that a wealthy family had given so much. Well, from this day on, this family never felt poor again because they understood that they were rich in their relationship with Jesus Christ. You see... If we follow the man-centered teachings of this world, you know what happens? We develop a victim's mentality. Our focus becomes right here on ourselves. That maybe we don't have enough money. Maybe we don't have a perfect family. Maybe we don't have perfect friends. Maybe we don't have everything we want. As we follow the world, we develop the mindset that we must strive to make ourselves feel better. To strive to make ourselves look better. That we must strive to make our lives more comfortable. That we must work on our own happiness in life. Paul told us, don't worry about any of that. Don't worry about that. Don't look at the outer man. Paul told us to not even look at the outward circumstances, but look to who we are in Christ. Look to that inner man that Christ has made us to be. Look to the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. Look to being grounded in love. Look to Christ dominating in your life. And as you yield yourself to him, then you will see that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to his power that works in us. God is able I don't think anybody in this room questions that. But the question I want to leave you with this morning is, are you willing? Are you willing to yield yourself to him to be used for his purpose that he has for you?
before we close out, I want to thank you for listening. And if you want to keep current with our studies, there's a lot of ways to make sure that you never miss another episode. You can subscribe by email. You can get our free app for your tablet or phone. You can also use the Apple Podcast app or one of the Android apps and have all of the episodes delivered right to your mobile device. You can find all of the links on our webpage, returntotheword.com, underneath the podcast tab. And if you have a minute, help us out by sharing this episode on Twitter or Facebook, because by telling others, you help us to tell the world of God's amazing grace. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.